Welcome to the EO Podcast with Brett Keesling, part of the EO Podcast Network. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Keesling. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Keith Butcher, co-founder of Butcher Joseph. You can find part one, which was episode 259, along with all of our previous episodes at www.esoppodcast.com. It's not strictly necessary that you listen to part one of our conversation for part two to make sense, but it really was a great conversation, so if you haven't heard it, you might want to circle back to hear part one, episode 259, before listening to this one. At any rate, we're going to pick it up where we had left off in part one. I asked Keith about my perception and fears that private equity coming into employee ownership, and particularly the ESOP space, would mean a lot more of relatively quick turnovers, i.e. investing in the company with the intent to sell it in four or five years. He began his answer in part one, and we'll pick up the rest of his comments right now. Here's Keith Butcher. And, and Brett, think about the circumstance I'm describing. It's an exaggerated version of the fear that I mentioned at the very start of our discussion, which is, okay, and, and many times these, these offers can be profound. Like you have employees that have $200,000 average account balances and some strategic buyer comes in and, they, and suddenly a leadership group at a board is looking at in your example, million dollar account balance. That happens. And and the fear that sets in is, well, now I got to protect a million dollars. God help me if I do something where the million dollars goes away for these folks. And I get that. And I'm super respectful of that. But I'm also like, they offered you that. They love this company and it fits. It's like such a strategic fit that even if you walked away today and said no, they'd be knocking on your door in 60 days and asking again, because that's innate. I mean, there are like, it, like we're so naive about how few really strategic fits there are like for companies. And when you find one, you're like, Whoo, you know, if it's, if it's an investment by my fund and we find a really, really great company, by God, we will have, okay, we'll go to the, we'll go to the dance two, three, four times before we get it closed. And it's still a great deal. And we're, ha- and we're not just, we don't just turn off and go, oh, well, there's, I'm sure there's another company that's just as good, right? And, and, it, and it comes down to that, but I get it. I mean, it's really, I, I think it's a super thoughtful and, and, and high integrity move for a leadership group to get like attached to that number that they want to deliver to their employee base. My only point is when they call me is I go, okay. And a lot of times, it, you know, they'll call and they'll be like, oh, can you help us? And I talk to them through my perspective on it and they don't ever call me back. And the reason is because I scare them. Because I'll be like, hey, have you thought about, maybe it shouldn't be, a, like I said before, maybe it shouldn't be a million dollars right now because employees never expected that. And maybe it should be $800,000 now. And then we, and we keep some upside and we negotiate with this buyer to allow us to roll into their deal just like somebody else would roll into a private equity deal, right? If private equity comes and buys a founder owner's business, the first point in the playbook for them is make sure the founder will co-invest with us because that gives them comfort in the business, right? The founder is going to roll over 20% of the proceeds with them. Why not an ESOP do the same exact thing? Can do it. Nothing wrong with that. And, and because my point to them is, you know, there, like, there is inherently a reason somebody's paying you this value today. It's not because this is the highest value this business will ever have. Inherent in that offer is, five or six or seven years down the line, they expect this thing to be worth three and four times what it is today. And guess what they're going to bring to the table? 
lots and lots of capital, piles of it. Wouldn't you like to ride along for that ride? And that's the transaction I'm most proud of, those transactions that I've gotten done, where I've been able to manufacture that, retain the employee ownership. May not be a you know majority anymore, it might be 30%, but I'm cool with that. Like I'm cool with giving these guys $800,000 each, life, life-changing money, and they own 30% of this company going forward. And they got a huge capital partner who's gonna do big things for the next five or 10 years. That's a win. And that's, to me, that's the answer to your question of longevity is, I love longevity too, but in the context of, you know, the unbelievable offer, we have to come up with a different paradigm. It can't be all or nothing. We can't just go, I just want long-term employee ownership. Then you have to switch your, your I think your thought process to harvest and and try to get a bite at that next app, uh, that next bite at the apple, right? And well, I like that too. We would, and, and I agree with you, and I would hear all the time when, when folks were considering transitioning to employee ownership or you know, maybe the company did and we'd hear it from, I'd hear from new employee owners and it would be, hey, would you ever sell the company? And I'm like, would I ever? And and you heard me earlier in this podcast say that, you know, my view is long-term. Would I ever? Sure. And they're like, <laughs> but our values, you know, our company values, I don't mean share value, our company values are, we want to keep this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, so someone offers a billion dollars. It's such an easy conversation to have. You know, that someone offers a billion dollars. Well, you're only worth 10 million. Yeah, I'd sell, you know, so 500 million, 100 million. You know, at what point it's not that little bit of premium. And just speak, uh, speaking real briefly to what another point you had made when offers would come to my clients and I sold my interest in cap trustees in 2019. So, you know, the specifics might have changed a little bit. But if there was an offer, if we thought the company would reach that value on its own within five years, it was a no to the offer. There was no reason to take that today if we could grow and en- enhance the uh, value, you know, with the company and the company management over, you know, four to five years. So it, it there's always, you know, I've got the view, I'm sure you do, that to some extent, everything is for sale. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, is the price right? But it's making that mindful decision with the interests of the employee owners being a part of that to what makes sense and and what's the best long-term interests of the company and its owners. Well, and so Brett, I'll, I'll propose this to you. And and this is, it goes all the way back to my original thesis of companies that have sort of lost that sort of entrepreneurial edge. I would propose to you that private equity groups have figured out that mature ESOP companies have lost that entrepreneurial edge. And they've figured out that, that they have slowed down in the way they take risks and, and the way they look at the world. And private equity is really good at identifying those facts and, and being able to unlock that value. And so they come in and they, they want to buy out employee-owned companies. And the reason they want to buy it, and they, they'll say, oh, because it's a great culture, a great employee stuff, maybe. But if I put a little more of a snarky hat on, I think it's because they've realized that these folks have slowed down. And they can put their money to work and they can rethrottle that company back into high feed and make a great return. So, and it isn't because of capital. It's because of the strategic way they're executing on their plan and private equity. And what does private equity love more than anything else? And there is nothing wrong with this. They're great investors. They love nothing more than investing a company and not having to put more capital to work after that just unlocking value through every other means possible. And, and so I say that to you know prospective clients. I say, listen, 
there's a reason like you're getting these calls and it's not, and it might not be because you're the prettiest. It might be because they think you're the slowest now. And you got to look internally and figure out if somewhat of that is true. And if they've diagnosed you from afar, because they study markets, they get market intelligence, they buy tons of market intelligence. They're not dumb investors they are managing billions of dollars. And, and that comes back to this, like the original thesis I have that I talked to folks about is, listen, when you are founder owned or when you are private equity owned, you have someone sitting there in that equity who is driving you to create that incremental level of value, either for personal income, right? Nothing wrong with that. Founders drive, like lots of them live out of their company, right? Like, okay, they have great lifestyles. and But guess what? They wake up on January 1. They pull out the whips and they start whipping everybody and going, let's go. I need to make my income for this year. So somebody is pressing everybody in the organization to grow and execute in a very, in a very real and passionate way. Private equity, the same thing, right? The minute they buy something, they got to sell it. And so they're already thinking if you, you are, I say this all the time, you're not a good private equity investor if you are not thinking about selling the company the minute you're investing and probably before which means they're driving and they're executing. And that's why I bring up this whole three, sell it in three years, because what I'm mimicking is that same set of healthy pressures that private equity brings to the table. And, and they've proven to create a lot of value. Like right. we could probably just do it ourselves to your original point, like coming back to your, could you do it in the next five years? Well, I hope they can, but there might need to be organizational changes for them to do it, but I bet they can. Unless it's just a capital issue. Like we need piles and piles of capital to do it. And then maybe then, you know, maybe you got to hit the bid. Maybe you got to sell. And maybe that's the right thing. And maybe you got to protect the house. Maybe you got to protect the million dollar balances. And I get it. And I think that's wonderful. And it happens. And there, you know, we reluctantly give up a couple of clients a year, right? That that move on and somebody buys them. And for the most part, they are the greatest success stories of our careers. Like we, we talk about the million dollar account balances and the, you know, that whole story, which is wonderful, right? But I think it's just, that's the, that's the reality of it. And so we got to create a healthy system. And that's what we've worked on in our practice is really creating a health, healthy system of instituting those same, those same positive stresses on the leadership team and the board and matching that up to the protect the house and balancing it. In a lot of different respects, Keith, I share and a lot of the podcasts are based on the culture side of the companies and, you know, getting everybody on the same page, et cetera, et cetera. And I've made the point numerous times that there is very little, except for the fiduciary stuff specifically related to the ESOP formation, everything that we talk about to companies is really just best practices for companies. And we put it under, we're mindful about it. But I was also thinking in terms of, you know, I saw it and I'm sure you know no doubt that, that you've seen this plenty of times, companies will come for that initial feasibility study. And here's the value. Here's what you might be able to get if you're considering transitioning to an ESOP. And it's not unusual for the, the folks doing the feasibility study, and I know that Butcher Joseph does them as well, to say, hey, if you took 12 months or you took 18 months, here's your value today. But here are the things that you could do that would enhance the value and make it more lucrative if that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that word, more lucrative to the selling yeah. shareholder. And I've always been struck by, why aren't you doing that anyway? And I'm just reminded that, that, that what you're really talking about are just the best practices for, for a company that coincidentally has the employee ownership component 
but it doesn't change the fact that it's it's invigorating that entrepreneurial spirit because just about 100% of every company started with that entrepreneurial spirit by definition. I, I totally agree with you. I don't think there's anything that we're doing that is like earth shattering and unique. It is simply taking and instituting back. You know, I, I don't think I know of a better way of putting it. Just these these positive, constructive stresses on the company and the leadership team, those motivations, and then match it. And the good news is if you succeed, it just benefits everyone. Like imagine a company where you have one owner, he owns 100% of the whole thing, and he comes to you and he says, we're going to work our butts off for the next two or three years, and we're going to get from $5 million of EBITDA to $10 million of EBITDA, and that's the goal. And everybody goes, okay, we love that guy. He's been a great founder. He's been around for a long time, does a lot of things for community, blah, blah, blah. Well, great. And they grow from five to 10 million and he gets a lot wealthier. Right, right. And you're telling me we can't do that with the same board and leadership team and say, and by the way, everybody benefits in the whole organization. They're, they're more than, they're, their account balances are going to more than double with that shift from that level of, in size of company. Because I guarantee you get a multiple expansion if you go to that level, right? That magic 10 million of EBITDA kind of level. But it comes back to the fact that there, the, the goal is no different than any other business. And I think you said it at the very start, it's to, it's to drive profitability, it's to drive growth. It's to, and all of that leads to account balances. All of it leads to all these other successful things. And we just, you know, we just like to institute it back that because you're an ESOP does not make you different. You're the same, same goals, same, same business goals as everybody else. It's just, you know, you got to get out of your head of, uh, you know, protect the house. I love that. And and the two sides of that message is for those who are not familiar with ESOPs, don't be afraid of ESOPs. Don't be afraid of employee ownership. And conversely, if you are an ESOP, don't be afraid of that entrepreneurial spirit that, that probably got you where you are today and take advantage. Keith, there's so much that you've covered and I really appreciate it. And there are lessons that people listening can take to heart. And, you know, one of the things that you had touched upon that I think is just very important is, you know, it's mindful if you're an S Corp that, that, that you're playing with a lot of tax-free dollars. So there are a lot of components that go into the house, you know, as you've said, and, and, and don't be afraid to run a great company, but ultimately business is hard. You know, we, we kind of look at it with, with rose colored glasses and, and you and I share a love of business generally that sometimes, you know, it's easy to overlook the fact that day in and day out, it is hard and just stay at it, be mindful about it, get great experts like yourself. And, you know, you can work a pretty good path. Well, I can't say it any better than that. So thanks, Brad. And, and thanks for doing this podcast, by the way. And I love being on it. And I, I love that you've had such a discipline to it. And it's great work. I really appreciate that. I've enjoyed, you know, we're in season seven now, and it's kind of really cool for me. I'm mindful that I've had about 200,000 listens over the course of seven seasons, six and a half seasons, and Joe Rogan got a million, 11 million today, you know? So uh, uh, we are, as you know, in a very small niche, but it's been very, I'm very grateful that you and, and the folks at Butcher Joseph and generally in the ESOP community itself have been so supportive. So with that, folks, we're going to include uh, some biography information on on Keith and on Butcher Joseph in our show notes. There will be some information on how to contact Keith. And if you have any questions, feel free to follow up with me or, or with Keith directly. But Keith, thank you so much for spending time. This was a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, Fred. Have a great week. 
All right, with that, we'll wrap up this episode of the ESOP podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at EO Podcast Network and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. This podcast has been produced by Brett Kiesling for the EO Podcast Network. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Branding and marketing by Bitsy Plus Design. And I'm Bitsy McKay.